the mind and therefore have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder, the soul and the spirit, and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. All scriptures God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Before we begin our study of the Word of God this evening, let's make sure that we're in fellowship, ready to go. I'm glad to see that everybody's flexible this evening, this week and next week, to move from Wednesday night to Tuesday night. That's good. It's good to see everybody here. So let's make sure we're in fellowship, have a few moments of silent prayer for confession of sin if necessary, and then we will begin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we have your word. What a phenomenal thing it is to know that the eternal, infinite God who created the heavens and the earth has indeed communicated precisely and propositionally to his creatures, that we may know your thinking and we may come to understand who you are, what you are like, and how we can have a relationship with you. Now, Father, as we continue our study of your word this evening, we pray that you would help us to understand these things under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, that we may see how they apply to our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 7. We continue our study. Now, it is important, I think, for us to always notice context. Context, context, context. One of the key principles in interpretation is that a text without a context is a pretext. Or as someone said recently, if you take, you know, everybody knows what a con is, what a con job is. If you have a, uh, if you take the text out of the context, you're left with a con. So we always have to make sure we understand some things about the context. Now, this particular epistle has been built around three principles, three major points that James is making. First, is quick to hear. Second, slow to speak. And third, slow to anger. Quick to uh, hear the Word of God. Rather, quick to hear. This was covered from about 119 down through uh, 226. The whole issue there was the priority of listening to doctrine. That learning the Word of God should be the highest priority in the believer's life because it is only through the consistent, systematic teaching of the Word of God that our thinking can be renovated. And so the issue here is thinking. Then the second section was in chapter 3, verses 1 through through 12, and the issue was slow to speak. And of course, one factor is that when you're talking, you're not thinking, so you need to be quiet and learn. So thinking, of course, is 
a key principle in the background there. And then he came to a pivotal section, a transition paragraph from 3.13 to 3.18. And we saw there the contrast between human viewpoint and divine viewpoint. Human viewpoint is also characterized by walking according to the flesh. It's characterized by arrogance. It's characterized by sin. Verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your heart, that is in your mental uh, attitude, in the thinking, the innermost thinking part of your soul, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom, that is that wisdom of human viewpoint, is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. So right there, James is already beginning to introduce a theme that runs through this section of slow to anger, and that is the external enemy of the world and worldly thinking, which is uh, cosmic thinking or human viewpoint thinking versus the divine viewpoint thinking of the Scripture. Human viewpoint thinking is characterized in that verse by three words. It's earthly, it is natural, and it is demonic. That means that human viewpoint thinking is not just the autonomous thinking of man, but it reflects at its very core the kind of thinking that characterized Satan's rebellion and the rebellion of the demons against God in eternity past. Natural, of course, does not really mean natural. It means soulish. It's the same word that you find over in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. It's sukikos. Just as the unbeliever is the sukikos man because he lacks a human spirit, has not been regenerated. So this characterizes the, the soulish man, the unbeliever, and is the best that man can come up with. Then we see this concept expanded when we come into verse 4 of chapter 4. There James says, You adulteresses, that is, your believers that are operating unfaithful to God, they're in reversionism, do you not know that friendship with the world, that is, the world is cosmos, cosmic thinking, that's another term used to describe a human viewpoint thinking, friendship with the world, that is, having an affinity and attraction to cosmic thinking, is hostility towards God. Once again, we see this set up in terms of opposites. One of two positions. You're either in divine viewpoint or human viewpoint. You're either a friend of the world in cosmic thinking or you're a friend of God. One or the other. If you're a friend of God, you're an antagonism to cosmic thinking. If you're a friend to a cosmic thinking, then at that point, you are an enemy to God. And then we see this taken to a new level when we come to verse 7. The problem that we see in the congregation James addresses is the problem of carnality. This is a problem that often uh, distracts and destroys people's lives because they, they get into thinking that just because all our sins were paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross, then it doesn't really matter what I do. It's called antinomianism. It's the idea that the mandates of Scripture don't really matter. The prohibitions, the positive commands of the New Testament are not really uh, that important to life because, after all, if I sin, all I have to do is confess it, and then uh, God wipes the slate clean and I can go forward. Well, it may be true, and it is true, 
that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And at the moment of confession, we are forgiven, we're restored to fellowship, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, and we can go forward in the spiritual life. But there are still consequences to that sin, whatever it might be. There are both uh, consequences in terms of the natural repercussions that come from sin. If you commit murder, then that person is still dead. If you get involved in uh, an overt sin like adultery or some sexual sin, it has uh, certain consequences both on your soul as well as other relationships. You may uh, contract uh, various diseases, all of those things. Just because you're forgiven doesn't mean those natural consequences from the sin do not still come your way. So carnality does not mean, just grace does not mean you get off scot-free and you get to sin with impunity. You uh, can recover from carnality and you can go forward in the spiritual life, but that uh, suffering for discipline that you get when you're in carnality, once you're in fellowship, the suffering for discipline may continue and may be diminished. In God's grace, He may remove it. Those are the three options. But if it continues or is even reduced, it now becomes suffering for blessing and you get the opportunity to use doctrine to handle the negative consequences that are the result of your bad decisions in carnality. So just because of God has grace and your sins are paid for doesn't mean you get away scot-free. And that's the point of verse 7. From in chapter 4, from 1 through 6, or 1 through 5, Paul or James is laying out the problem. The problem is their reversionism. They are, they are in reversionism because they are operating according to the sin nature. Here's a diagram of the sin nature. The sin nature is always the source of temptation, but it's not the source of sin. The source of sin is our volition. We've covered this in detail. Uh, When we're in fellowship, the sin nature tempts us, and we have to exercise our volition positively uh, toward doctrine or negatively against doctrine. And if we are negative to doctrine and we're positive to the temptation, then at that point we sin. This proceeds from the area of weakness in the sin nature. Once we're out of fellowship, it is the sin nature that is the primary influence in the life. Now, that does not mean we continue in sin. We can always have a guilt reaction and start producing a lot of morality and a lot of human good. But all our righteousness is are its filthy rags in the sight of God, according to Isaiah 64, 6. So even though we're doing many good things, religious things, prayer, uh, getting involved in activities at church and all kinds of different things that we think somehow impress God with, with our sorrow and remorse over our guilt, uh, it still flows from human good because we have not yet confessed our sins. Now, when we're out of fellowship, we're all going to trend in one of two directions. We're all like this. Everybody's different. Some of you have trends towards legalism and self-righteousness. Others of you have trends towards antinomianism and licentiousness. The problem is, if you have a trend towards antinomianism and licentiousness, then it's easy to rationalize your disobedience by saying, well, God understands, and God knows I'm a sinner, and Christ already paid for my sins, so so it's really not that bad, and, and I'll just have a good time. And then you stay out of fellowship, and you plunge further and further into immoral degeneracy, and it usually comes back and harms you and destroys your life, and makes you miserable, and the consequences that are the result of this immoral degeneracy are devastating to your life. Now, you can recover. 
You can also go, before we get into the doctrine of recovery, which is the subject of the next four verses, you can also trend towards asceticism and legalism. Self-righteousness takes over. Morality takes over. There's no great sin, overt sin in the life, but there's a lot of good deeds, but it still flows from the trend of the sin nature in terms of legalism, and you become a moral degenerate like the Pharisees when Christ was on the earth at the first advent. Now, how do you recover? No matter how bad life is, no matter how much you have messed up your life, no matter how many bad decisions you've made, the promise of Scripture is that we all have the grace of God. And the grace of God means that if you're still alive, recovery is possible. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean it's going to be simple. But it does mean that recovery is possible, and that recovery is based upon two things. Number one, the filling of God the Holy Spirit, and number two, the Word of God, and they work together. So you have to start spending as much time as possible in fellowship with the Lord under the filling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, walking by means of the Holy Spirit, as we've studied in, in, on Sunday morning in Galatians chapter 5. Walking by means of God the Holy Spirit, and then according to Colossians 3.16, letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. That's Bible doctrine. The Holy Spirit never operates apart from doctrine in the soul. So that is how you recover. And if you have spent years and years in reversionism, years in carnality, then it's going to take a tremendous amount of diligence and discipline on your part to make sure that your spiritual life becomes a priority and that you're in Bible class Sunday morning twice, Wednesday night, getting tapes you've missed, listening to tapes over and over again, saturating your soul with doctrine. That's what the primary responsibility of the believer is in the church age, is to saturate our soul with doctrine so that it just takes the least amount of pressure, like a sponge. You fill that sponge up with water, and it's just soaked, and just takes a little bit of pressure, and it begins to drip water. That's how our soul should be, so saturated with doctrine, the least bit of pressure from adversity our prosperity, and it just leaks doctrine, just drips doctrine. But to get there, you have to follow the principles of recovery outlined in verses 7 through 10 of our passage here in James 4. We started James 4 last time, and we saw the beginning uh, command, Submit, therefore, to God. The way it's, There are some translation problems in the verse, so we need to go back and take it apart a little bit exegetically to make sure we understand what it says in the original languages. Submit, therefore, to God is a command. The verb is hupotasso. Hupotasso looks like this in the Greek. H-U-P-O-T-A-S-S-O. It means to, to submit, to subject yourself to, to uh, obey, it is the fundamental word for understanding authority orientation. Authority orientation, is a, as an establishment principle, is fundamental to every issue in life. That's why it's so crucial for you parents to make sure you, have a, you make conscientious efforts to teach your kids respect for authority, for your authority, for the authority of mom, the authority of dad, the authority the authorities at school, uh, the authorities of government, whether or not those people in authority are worthy of respect or not. 
That's one of the most difficult things to understand is respect for authority even though the person in the office is not worthy of respect. David demonstrated that in the Old Testament. Even though God had anointed him king already under Samuel, he went through years of persecution by Saul and even had opportunities to take Saul's life knowing that Saul was in reversionism, in rebellion against God, that Saul was actively seeking David to have him murdered so that he would not take his place on the throne. David had two opportunities where he was in a cave hiding, and Saul came into the cave either to rest or to take a rest stop, and he was within inches of David, and David could have easily taken his sword and killed Saul, but he did not because he would not harm the Lord's anointed. And the principle there is, is you always have to respect the office, even if the person in the office is not worthy of respect. That same thing holds true in marriage. Ladies, when you're married to some man and he is not worthy of respect, he still holds the position in the family of being the head of the home, of being the uh, father, the authority over the children, and that position must always be respected. So you never say or do things that run him down, especially in front of the kids. You never say things to other people. You never go to prayer meetings. You never call up your friends and say, well, you know, he did this loser did this again. You need to pray about this. You know, they always take the holier-than-thou route. I have a prayer request for you. You need to pray for my husband. Now we know that's the introduction to... Now let's have a little character assassination and... Um, gossip and run him down. You never want to get in that because that shows disrespect for the position he holds even if he is not worthy personally of that respect. So submission always has to do with the doctrine of authority orientation. Now this is a key concept here because it is expressed in the aorist tense and the imperative mood. When you have an aorist imperative, an aorist active imperative here, but an aorist imperative always emphasizes urgency and priority. This is in contrast to a present imperative, which indicates a standard operating procedure in the spiritual life. An aorist imperative indicates a an urgent situation, a priority situation, and we are going to find in the next four verses ten aorist imperatives. So James has, in a sense, brought the theme of this epistle to a crescendo. He has dealt with the issue of the priority of doctrine in chapter 1 and chapter 2. He has then gone on to deal with the sins of the tongue that is plaguing this congregation in chapter 3, and now he gets to the real core issue, which is the mental attitude sin, the carnality that is running rampant in this congregation because they are failing to use God's grace recovery procedure, and they are failing to understand the principles of 1 John 1.9, and so they continue to sin, they continue to sin, they continue to give in to the mental attitude sins, it's dividing the congregation, it's fractured, fragmenting relationships, and it's fragmenting the soul. They are becoming uh, two-souled daisukas, called double-minded in verse 8, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. So the command here is, submit, therefore, to God. Authority orientation. 
If you do not get yourself in a right relationship with the Lord and submitting to His authority, then you are going to come under the most horrendous divine discipline that will make you absolutely miserable. What this means is that you want to do X. This is your will. You want to do certain things. It's very attractive. It's very enjoyable. It's very pleasing. It just seems like the natural thing to do. And God's will says you have to do Y. Now, you can, at this point, you have to exercise your volition positive to the word or negative to the word. Now, you can rationalize this and say, well, the Lord will forgive me. He understands. Doesn't the scripture say something about about Jesus fully understanding all of our weaknesses. And we come up with all kinds of ways to rationalize and, and justify uh, following the, the lusts of our sin nature. And this is nothing more than the arrogant skills. Remember, the arrogant skills begins with self-absorption. Then it proceeds to self-indulgence. Then it goes to self-justification and culminates in self-deception, uh, which is pure total subjectivity dominating the soul which usually ends up in some form of emotional revolt where we are uh, operating on feelings as the criterion for life. And this is a major problem in our culture today because we have reacted to the, in the rationalism of the Enlightenment over the past two centuries and now that reaction has really gone to seed in the form of the New Age movement, postmodernism, all of the things that we've studied which emphasize sub- subjectivity and our feelings. This is uh, one of the major impacts, I think, of, of uh, Freudian psychotherapy in the last hundred years is that there are many things you don't find prior to Freud in, in theological literature. Prior to the late 19th century, you don't see an emphasis on emotion, on human emotion, on even emotion in God. In fact, a few years ago, I did a study, not an extensive study, but I went back and I looked at, at uh, several medieval theologians. I looked at uh, Protestant Reformed theologians from uh, the Reformation, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, uh, some others, and I couldn't find anyone doing what is common today. Common, peop- common today among theologians is to say that the image of God in man has to do with three things. Intellect, will, and emotion. Only thing is, you don't find anybody talking about emotion in God prior to the late 19th century. And it's my thought that as a result of psychotherapy's influence on the fact that we have to get in touch with our feelings and our emotions, that we've become a much more emotion-oriented culture and the more we've become emotion-oriented, the more we've wanted to create God in our image. You know, the Scripture says He created us in him, His image, so now we want to return the favor. And since we have emotion, we want to attribute that to God. And I think that in the Scriptures, it's interesting, up until the late 19th century, you had many, most theologies discussed anthropo, anthropo, pathisms as a category of interpretation. Now, an anthropopathism comes from the Greek word anthropos, meaning man, pathos, meaning emotion. And it is the uh, 
attribution of emotions that God does not actually possess to God, attributing to God human emotion so that we can understand God's policies and God's plan for mankind. But in the last hundred years, it's become less and less acceptable among even conservative theologians to ever utilize the word anthropopathism. In fact, most of my professors at seminary would say there was no example of an anthropopathism in Scripture, and, this, and that is true of many other seminaries as well. And I find that, that what has happened is as we have gone along and become more and more subjective and put more and more emphasis on emotions, we want to attribute that to God. Well, we're getting away from our subject here. Verse 7, Submit therefore to God. The issue here is on thinking. We have to orient ourselves to what God says, and we have to say, as soon as He says, do Y, and we want to do X, we need to snap to and say, yes, sir, or for you Navy guys, aye, aye, sir, and move out. That's what authority orientation is. Authority orientation is not demonstrated when what God wants us to do is also convenient for us to do. See, that's what happens a lot of times. We think that, that, well, that's not too bad. I can do that. But the real test of authority orientation is when the CEO wants us to do something that we really hate to do. And when God wants us to do something that runs counter to where our sin nature is driving us at that point, that's when we discover the true issue of submission to authority. Now, authority orientation is an important aspect to our subject. The subject of recovery, grace recovery, was first introduced in verse 6, where James says, but he gives a greater grace. So the emphasis here is going to be on God's grace. He gives a greater grace. We saw the comparative there was in uh, comparative was in contrast to the desire of the sin nature in verse 5. And last time we had to retranslate verse 5. We spent quite a bit of time looking at the exegesis there. And we saw that the correct translation of that verse was, or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? Quote, the Spirit that has, the Spirit that is the attitude, not the Holy Spirit or human spirit, but the Spirit that is the attitude that has taken a dwelling within us is prone to envious lust. In other words, James is continuing from verse 1 through verse 5 to emphasize the devastating consequences of following the dictates of the sin nature in the life. And then we have a contrast in verse 6. The contrast is is that God's grace is greater than any problem that we face from the sin nature. Now, there are three enemies in the spiritual life. So far in James, we have specifically addressed the first two. We'll, call it, we'll look at two and three. Number two is the cosmic system. Number three is that internal enemy of the sin nature. The first enemy is Satan. And that becomes the subject of verse 7. So these are the three enemies that every single believer faces in life. Satan, the world system, 
which he is behind and which he oversees, and our own internal sin nature. Now what this passage in verse 6 is saying is that God's grace is sufficient. It's the same principle that Paul stipulates in first Corinth, I mean second Corinthians when he when God has sent this thorn demon, this uh, thorn in the side, a messenger from Satan, angelos from Satan, which indicates that it's a demon, to to torment Paul. Now we don't know how he tormented Paul, we don't know what the problem was, but it was a continuous problem in the life of Paul, and Paul knew that ultimately the the ultimate source of the problem had to do with the angelic conflict and a demon. And Paul prayed three times to the Lord to remove it. Now, our superficial concept of prayer is that, of course, God, why wouldn't God remove this source of suffering and torment so that Paul wouldn't have this distraction? But the Lord put it there and allowed this demon to torment Paul in whatever way it was. And I think that it wasn't a direct... We get this mystical... See, we're living in an age of mysticism, so we want to come back and interpret all these passages in some kind of mystic way that Paul's out here having a uh, punching bag contest or jousting contest with some demon. And if you go back, and we don't have time to do it, but if you look at the passage there in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul is is going through various torments. He's going through suffering. He's going through adversity. He's going through hostility, antagonism, resentment from people. He's going through persecutions. That is how this thorn demon is operating. It's not this direct one-on-one thing where this demon is having a direct encounter or attack on Paul. The demon is working through the system. That is how Satan operates 99.9% of the time. Rarely is there ever any sort of direct encounter between a believer and a demon and or Satan. Satan always works through the cosmic system. So the, the demon was working through the cosmic system and was tormenting Saul through various levels of persecutions, beatings, things like that. And Paul is saying, Lord, take this away. And the Lord said, no, as long as you've got that, it's going to remind you to be submitted to my authority and that my grace is what? My grace is sufficient for you. Now that word sufficient means enough. Enough. That means you don't need anything else. God's grace is all we need to handle any and every problem. That's the principle here. God gives a greater grace. God's grace is greater than any problem, any difficulty, any testing, any heartache that we will ever face in life. But in order to avail ourselves of God's grace, we have to be submitted to His authority, and that is humility. Humility is authority orientation In practice, so the scripture says God is opposed or he makes war. He is antagonistic to the arrogant believer, but he gives grace to the humble believer. Now, the whole issue underlying this is if you're going to advance in the spiritual life, if you're going to handle the outside pressure of adversity on the soul, then one of the first things you must master is grace orientation. We have our picture of the soul fortress. The psalmist speaks about the fact that the Lord is our rock. He is our fortress. He is our bulwark. He is our shield. 
So God has provided certain uh, tools, certain techniques, problem-solving devices, or what we call stress busters, in order to handle the outside pressure of adversity and prosperity. Starts with confession, then we have the filling of the God, the Holy Spirit, utilization of the faith rest drill, mixing our faith with the promises of God, and then the next step in terms of logical development and procedure is grace orientation. Why do you put grace orientation here at this early stage in spiritual growth? Because grace orientation is comprised of several different features. Part of grace orientation is authority orientation. We have to recognize that God is in control and God has determined how things operate in life and the principle is grace, not our works. Second, that goes hand in hand with that, which is sort of like the other side of the coin, is humility. Humility in two categories. We have uh, enforced humility and we have genuine humility. Enforced humility is when you find yourself in a position where you have a boss, you have parents, you have a coach, you have a, an officer over you in the military that enforces his authority on you, and there you learn humility. That produces in your soul the response of genuine humility, which then begins to characterize your life. A third characteristic of grace orientation is a relaxed mental attitude because you realize that God is in control. The issue is God's plan and procedure and policy and not your agenda. And so you begin to relax in the plan of God. All of this is part of grace orientation and it results in teachability. If you do not have authority orientation, humility, and a relaxed mental attitude, you will not be teachable. And if you are not teachable, you will not advance in the spiritual life. Because we all have to realize that our entire thinking process, not only what we think, but how we think, needs to be completely renovated by the Word of God. So we have... This whole process, authority orientation, humility, relaxed mental attitude, and teachability are all part of grace orientation. And then when that's in place, and as that gets in place, then we can learn doctrine and start renovating the thinking in our soul. This is why James says that we are to submit, therefore, to God. This is the recovery procedure. It starts off with a recognition when we're out of fellowship that we're in disobedience to the authority in our life, which is God, and that we have to turn around and submit to His authority. Now, there is a flip side to this. It's like a, a coin. You know, on a coin, you have one coin, but it has two faces. It has a heads on one side, tails on the other. On one side, we have submission to God. On the other side, we have resisting the devil. Now, how do we know that these are not? If this isn't just a progressive list, because there is a word in the Greek text that is completely left out of the English text. The English text just says, "Submit therefore to God," but the Greek text adds a conjunction after you have the command to resist, which is "anthistemi." It is followed in this 
post-positive position by the conjunction de, de, and de means and, or and then, or it can even mean but, it can be contrastive, but here it is a conjunction, and you have submit to God and resist the devil. They're two sides of the same coin. And we see this because throughout this section, James has been emphasizing two spheres of operation as we've seen already. There's the divine sphere, there's the human sphere. The human sphere is, is uh, called earth, we've already seen it's called earthly, natural, demonic. Paul in Galatians says it's the operation of the law or legalism. It's walking according to the flesh. It's human viewpoint thinking. It's demonic thinking. It's earthly thinking. We've seen here in James 4.4, uh, 4, it is cosmic thinking. It is the thinking of the world system. In contrast, there is divine viewpoint thinking, which is based upon grace. It's based upon the power and the work of God the Holy Spirit. It is characterized by divine viewpoint. It is God's thinking as opposed to demonic thinking. And it is based upon the categorical instruction of Bible doctrine. So you're either operating in one of these two arenas. It's not a both and. You're not walking down the middle of the street with one foot on each side of the line. You're either over here or you're over here. You can't be both. One or the other. And it's very clear. So what James is saying here is, on the one hand, when you submit to God, you're resisting the devil. That's In submitting to God, you're resisting the devil. So when we ask the question, which we must ask when we come to this next command, how do do we resist the devil? We resist the devil by submitting to God by grace recovery, getting in fellowship, being filled with the Spirit, and walking according to the norms and standards of Bible doctrine. Now, before we get to that, we have to spend, and we'll probably spend a couple of weeks on this passage, because it is one that is distorted, abused many times today, and we need to take a whole look at the doctrine of spiritual warfare, which will entail demon influence, demon possession, and how we as believers are to engage in resisting the devil. So let's start off by asking the question, resist the devil, why and how? First of all, we have to have the origin of the angelic conflict and how we uh, get the devil. Point number one, angels were created in eternity past. All the angels were created perfect and sinless. We're going to put an X here to mark the beginning of human creation, the world, the universe as we know it. This is what we find in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, there is an indeterminable amount of time. Now, we have all studied this. I covered this a few weeks ago that there are two ways in which this gap of time has been interpreted. If you go all the way back into the Middle Ages, in fact, you can go back into the early Middle Ages, at least as early as the 3rd to 4th century, 
as far as I've been able to determine this, and you will find evidence even among the rabbis that there is a gap of time between Genesis 1-1, which states the original creation of the universe, and Genesis 1-2. One of the reasons they saw that was on the basis of the grammar in the, in the uh, Hebrew text. Second is the language, that by the time you get over here into 1-2, darkness covers the face of the deep. Darkness uh, covers the face of the deep. There's darkness, there's the deep, and there is an, there's an absence of light. And the earth is called tohu fabohu in the Hebrew, which means uh, empty and waste. When you cover, use, look at all three of these terms together, the way they're used is images throughout the Bible. Darkness always speaks of sin. Darkness is an absence of light. God is light. We know from a comparison with the end of time in Revelation 22 or 21 that, that um, there will be no sun needed in the eternal state because everything is illuminated by the glory of God. That that would have been the status of the original creation Darkness means an absence of light. What caused the light to be turned off? Uh, deep also indicates the turmoil of the salt sea, which also speaks of death. No fresh water uh, indicated in the tahom, the Hebrew word there. And tohu vabohu is also used in passages in Isaiah, uh, which uh, refer to judgment. So the total context here indicates that some sort of judgment has occurred on the earth and that starting in 1-2, God is going to start from, from the, the ground up, so to speak, and completely renovate the planet. Now, in the early church, in the medieval church, they understood the gap for a theological reason is all. Not just grammar alone or language at all, but also a theological reason. And that was to find a place where the angels were created and to give time for the fall of Lucifer. And I call this the moral gap view. Now, the uh, well, a sad thing that happened in the 19th century with the rise of, of the human viewpoint system of origins called evolution. It didn't originate with Darwin. He gave it a scientific explanation. There were others. And initially, they, as I said before, they uh, posited a date for the earth of Maybe 40, 50,000 years. But, you know, in the 1830s, they said the earth is older than we think it is. It's only 40 or 50,000 years. Well, Bible scholars were saying, well, that's not that much, 10, 15, 20,000 years. We just got to figure out some way to come up with a few thousand years. See, now it's, you know, 10, 15, 20 million years, and they're trying to figure out where to come up. We realize now there's no accommodation with evolution. And so the old moral gap view, which sought to explain the fall of Lucifer, became an accommodationist evolutionary concept, which was totally false, where they tried to ram, cram, and jam all of the geologic ages and fossils and everything else into the gap. And frankly, that just doesn't work. And we've explained that for a number of reasons, the most simple of which is that you have to take the entire geologic column as a unit, because it's mixed up in places, and obviously all of the layers, all the 
all of the fossils were laid down by the same cataclysm. And since you have human fossils mixed in there with dinosaur fossils and all kinds of other fossils, if you have any death whatsoever prior to Adam's sin, then death is part of creation and not a curse on creation. And that's the point Paul makes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that death came by one man. There he's talking about physical death because the subject is resurrection. And so, we know that the whole evolutionary concept is really a very subtle satanic concept or attack on the necessity of the cross. Because if sin is not the, if death is not the result of sin, if death is not the result of sin, then the Savior did not have to die. And so the cross was really a mistake. And it's not necessary. And we've gone through this in detail and we have seen that there is a gap there but it was not a gap that is used to accommodate the false concepts of evolution. Now, what happened in that gap? Well, we have to look at a couple of passages in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28 in order to understand what happened. So let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 28. Well, before we get there, let's go even further back in the Old Testament to Job 38. Job 38. Just want to take you through a couple of these passages to show the do- biblical documentation for what I'm saying. See, we live in an age that is being dominated by a mystical worldview. And under mysticism, people are always looking for some kind of spiritistic explanation for things. And when you come to the doctrine of demonology and Satanology in Scripture, there is this pressure on the biblical doctrine to reshape it into the form of some sort of mystical uh, attack. And you see all kinds of things coming out in churches today, wanting to bind and, and re- bind Satan, rebuke Satan, and that's how James is interpreted. When it says, resist the devil, saying, well, that means we need to bind Satan and we need to rebuke Satan. So in order to show why that's false, in order to show what the Bible really teaches about the believer's relationship to demons in the angelic conflict, we have to start from ground zero to make sure we have no misconceptions or false assumptions that are um, affecting our thinking. So we have to go back to the fact that God created at some point in eternity past the universe. Job tells us the circumstances surrounding that original creation in Job 38 verse 4. Now in this context, we have to understand a little bit of background. Job has gone through a a tremendous amount of suffering that was originally initiated by Satan in heaven. Satan looked down on the earth and said, Lord, you know, you've blessed Job. He has everything, but the only reason he worships you is because you've given him everything. Let me uh, test him. And went through a couple of permutations there, and he uh, tested Job, and Job went through a remarkable amount of suffering, and he never seems to question God until finally he, he listens to his friends and begins to uh, question 
God, why did all this happen? The interesting thing we learn from Job is God never answers that question. It's illegitimate. It is a sign of arrogance for the creature to ask the Creator, why are you doing this to me? God never answers. And in this speech that God gives Job in Job 38, we see the thrust of this. That God's wisdom is greater than our wisdom. God's knowledge is higher than our knowledge. So who are we to ask Him why He is doing certain things in our life? And as part of God's answer to Job to show His own omniscience over against Job's limited finite knowledge, God asks several questions. Verse 4, He says, Now where were you? When I laid the foundation of the earth, tell me if you have understanding. You think you're smart enough, Job, to be able to understand an answer to why if I gave it to you. Uh, If you have understanding, just try to explain the foundation of the earth. Who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now this is set in Hebrew poetry so that you have parallelism of ideas. In English, when we have poetry, we rhyme words. But in Hebrew poetry, you rhyme ideas so that one stanza mirrors or reflects another stanza. And in this series of questions, God is basically asking the same thing in terms of where were you when I constructed and built the earth? If you have enough knowledge to comprehend all of that, then maybe I would answer your question. He's showing the limited empirical knowledge of Job. But the thing that he notes here, and the only thing we're going here for, is that God is saying that at this point in time, I constructed planet earth. I laid its foundation. I... set its measurements, I stretched the line out, I set its bases, its cornerstone. And what are these external circumstances? When the morning stars, that's a term for angels, the morning stars sang together and all, notice that word all, no division. They are singing together in harmony. At this point in time, there is no division among the angelic creatures. Now the term sons of God is a technical term in Hebrew for angels. It is the Hebrew word, B'nai Ha Elohim. B-E-N-E. H-A is a definite article. Then Elohim, the name for God. Sons of God. And this word is always used, it's not a term for believers, it's always used in the Old Testament to describe all of the angelic creatures. So he says that all the sons of God, all the angels are in harmony. They shout for joy, they sing together. It's a heavenly chorus that sings out their praises to God in response to seeing His marvelous work in creating the universe and the earth. The heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So from that we conclude that all of the angels at that point were in harmony and there was no division between the fallen angels and the holy angels. Then point two. 
Each angel was created individually. There's no angelic race. Angels don't procreate. Angels are immaterial. They are creatures of light. Their, their essential nature is light. They're immaterial. But each angel was created with volition, which is the ability to choose for or against God. And this was the only test that angels had in relation to eternal salvation was whether or not they would consistently be positive to God and obey God. Each angel is created with volition, and at some point, one of these angels, he was the highest of all the angels, he was the most intelligent of all the angels, he was the most brilliant, the most glorious, and the most beautiful of all God's creatures. Never did God create another creature as glorious as Lucifer. He was the head of all of the angels. He was of the class called Cherub, as we'll see in just a minute, which indicates that he had a particular role associated with the throne room of God. So let's turn now to Ezekiel first. Let's look at Ezekiel chapter 28. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Ezekiel 28. Look at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, now me here is Ezekiel, the prophet. Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre. Now the leader of Tyre here in the Greek is really the word uh, Rosh, which means the prince. The prince of Tyre. Tyre was a city-state, a Philistine city-state on the Mediterranean coast. And then there is an indictment of the prince of Tyre. Prince of Tyre relates to the human ruler of this city-state. Then look down at verse 11. A second oracle is given to the prophet. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. Now, there is a shift here from Rosh, meaning prince or leader, to king, meaning the ultimate authority, the Amenas Gris, the ruler behind the throne the real power base, which here is not a human leader, but a non-human leader, as we can tell, and some angel. As we will see, it is Lucifer himself. Thus says the Lord God. You see, what is said about this king of Tyre cannot be said of, hum of any human ruler. begins in verse 12, and notice it's in poet poetic form. You had the seal of perfection. That means you were perfect. It's a Hebrew idiom. You were perfect. You were full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. In other words, you were the smartest, the most intelligent, the most beautiful of any creature. You were, in Eden, the garden of God. This is a term that is used of the very throne room of God. And this indicates to us something about the nature of Genesis 1 and 2. When God placed man in Eden, it was in a garden outside of Eden, and Eden there reflects the personal throne and presence 
of God. So we know that God dwelt upon the earth, at least at that point, which is indicated and confirmed by some other passages in Genesis chapter 6. But you are in Eden, the garden of God, which indicates that this person can't be a human king because he was in the very presence of God. And then it says in verse 13, Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, the emerald, the gold. Workmanship of your settings and sockets were in you on the day that you were created. So that tells us that this is a creature. Now, I'm gonna, I don't have time to do detailed exegesis and don't want to go through every detail here, but it's fascinating because these stones that are listed are also, there's about a 75% correlation with the stones in the breastplate of the high priest of Israel. So this, this concept that there is this breastplate that this cherub wears that has this, these stones on it that speaks of the high priest indicates that there's possibly a priestly function. Remember, when Ezekiel wrote this, he's writing this to Jews. The Jews are very familiar with what the high priest wore. As soon as he listed this, every Jewish reader would immediately think of the uniform of the high priest. It cannot be escaped. And then he goes on to say some other interesting things about this creature. Verse 14, You are the anointed cherub who covers. Now this is a phrase that is pregnant with doctrinal significance. First of all, this cherub is said to be anointed. This is the Hebrew word, Mashiach. I-A-C-H. Which is where we get our word, Messiah, Christos in the Greek, and it means the appointed. The appointed one. The anointed one. You are the anointed chair. But notice, the word that is used to describe this cherub is also a word used to describe the Lord Jesus Christ. So he has a priestly role, he has a role as being anointed, and he is a cherub who covers, who covers. The Hebrew word here is a word that is often associated with atonement. And there's nuances here that that are not developed in the text. But what they suggest to us is that God existed in in His throne room, the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He creates this vast number of angels, myriads upon myriads, millions and millions of angels, all different categories, classifications, cherubim, seraphim, um, all kinds of different other classifications of angels. And then at the very top of this angelic hierarchy is one angel, Lucifer, who functions as a ruler of the angels, as a priest, and perhaps he communicates to them as a prophet. He falls from that position, and the suggestion is that the Lord Jesus Christ in His role as prophet, priest, and king is going to, instead of another creature, 
being placed in that position of authority because of its temptation to abuse, it is the Lord Jesus Christ ultimately who takes over that position. Now, that's not suggesting anything soteriological for the angels at all. I don't mean to suggest that. It's just this is a very fascinating um, the indication here about how Satan falls and his task is taken up as a responsibility of God the Son. It says, You're on the holy mountain of God. You walk in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. And then verse 16 says, By the abundance of your trade, trade. What, what does it mean, trade? This commercial term. You have to understand the importance of Tyre. Tyre was a, a seacoast city. It had a, it had a harbor. And as the, as the uh, uh, Philistines and the uh, Greek sea peoples traded throughout the, the Mediterranean and all over the world, they brought these goods to Tyre. So it was a commercial center. And Ezekiel is using this image of commerce and trade to indicate what this creature did. He, he, he was involved in some sort of movement of something. And this is why I think that there's, there's worship going on here. As the angels worship God, it is Lucifer that is somehow involved in this priestly function of communicating the worship and praise of the angels to God, and he wants it for himself. And this fills him with arrogance Ezekiel says, And you sin, therefore I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. In other words, his arrogance. He looked at himself in Isaiah 14. We'll close by looking at Isaiah 14 where we have the the expression of, of his volition at this time. Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah 14 at verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, star of the morning. The original uh, King James translated the term star of the morning, Lucifer, son of the light, son of the dawn, indicating his very nature, that he is a creature of light, indicating his essential nature. O star of the morning, son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, in your mental attitude, in the innermost recesses of your soul, the five I wills expressing his arrogance. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I'm going to rule all the angels and be the ultimate authority over the angels. And I will sit on the mount of assembly. In other words, I will be the judge. The mount of assembly was where where God sat as a judge over the angelic forces. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, another metaphor that's used to speak of the angels, and I will make myself like the Most High. Satan's goal is to rule the universe as God. He thinks that he can do it on his agenda and his modus operandi just as good, if not better, than God. Except God is saying that the Modus operandi is grace and is built on humility and the concept of being a servant. 
And we have seen this in our study of Jesus Christ, in our study of John, that He came first to be a servant and not to be a ruler and lord it over people as the Gentiles did. In contrast, Satan wants to operate on a work system. The essential core motivation is arrogance. And instead of being a servant, he wants to rule and exercise authority on his own and for his own terms. And what this is showing is that Satan has a whole M.O., an entire M.O., that God is going to demonstrate is a complete and total failure. And the only way for success in life is to follow God's grace policy and the procedures built on humility and being a servant. This is why uh, what happened in the angelic conflict that Satan revolted. He led a third of the angels against God. He was given a new name, Shatan, which means accuser or adversary in Zechariah 3, 1 through 2. Uh, and he accused God as God judged him and sentenced the angels to eternity in the lake of fire, according to Matthew 25:41. Satan challenged him. And that challenge impugned God's graciousness. It impugned His justice. And it also asserted the fact that you haven't really given me a chance to make a go of it according to my standards. So God said, okay, we're going to have a little experiment here. And an experiment not in the sense that you, in the science classroom, that you go in, you set up in the laboratory, and you're going to see if something is true or false. That's not what experiment means. The essential meaning of experiment is to demonstrate the truth of something. So God is going to demonstrate the eternal truth of His rule. That is what I mean by experiment. And this experiment means that first we're going to restore planet Earth so that I can put a new creature there, man, that's going to be created a little lower than the angels so that when He operates on grace orientation and humility and exercises the role of a servant to me in my rule, then I will elevate him to a position of ruling and reigning over the angels. Psalm 9, man is created a little lower than the angels, but he will be elevated above the angels. So the key here is to realize that in the context of this, we are plunged into a spiritual warfare where man is down on the field like a huge coliseum The angels are in the seats, in the stands, watching, and we are to demonstrate by our lives, by the way we learn doctrine and apply doctrine, the veracity of God's grace policy and His procedure based on humility and authority orientation to to God. And that is where we'll begin next time as we learn how this works itself out in human history and just the extent of Satan's power over man and how we are to resist him and just exactly what that means and what it doesn't mean. And we'll look at that next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for Your Word, for how it helps us understand where we fit within the entire order of things. We understand Your sovereignty, Your, your rule as the Creator of heaven, the heavens and the earth. And we understand the important dynamics that are involved in the spiritual life. Father, we pray that we could learn to think and look at our lives in terms of this uh, cosmic conflict between the angels and the role that we play as the evidence 
in your experiment of human history to demonstrate the superiority of your grace policy over against the arrogance policy of Satan. We pray these things now in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.